This episode is brought to you by God Wants You to Be Rich, my 10-week coaching program for ambitious and spiritual Jewish women who want to gain the literacy and confidence to manage their money, making more, giving more, and investing to fund their values. Check out the details at yaeltrush.com forward slash rich and hurry because doors to the 2023 cohort of God Wants You to Be Rich closed Thursday, December 22nd at midnight. Enroll at yaeltrush.com forward slash rich. Jewish Money Matters, episode 297, Building Wealth the Boring Way, with Personal Finance Club founder and multimillionaire Jeremy Schneider. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. I had a weird period of time where we basically shook hands on the sale price of the company in December of 2014. And then in April of 2015 is when the deal closed and they like sent a bank wire and I clicked to refresh my bank account and all the money appeared. And so there was three and a half months or so where I was like living on $36,000 a year, driving a 99 Ford Explorer. And I knew there was like a pretty good chance that millions of dollars were going to be wired to my bank account in a few months. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Two nights of Hanukkah and I'm already dizzy like a dreidel (laughs) from all the events around town. Party, party, party. Eight crazy nights, don't they say? Okay, my kids are all coming home today, so it gets even better. Plus, my five-day retreat, well, it's never really five days because I had an after-party session both Sunday and Monday, and I was all so good. All that to say, it's been a big party around here. And the doors to my 10-week coaching program, God Wants You to Be Rich, opened up. Yes, they're open right now, but only for a few more days. The doors to this fabulous financial transformation program close Thursday, this Thursday, December 22nd at midnight. And we get started, guess what, when? Monday, this coming Monday, December 26th. Woohoo, and I can't wait. I tell you, the cohort this year is so fabulous. If you're listening to this and you're already joining us, I'm so excited that we're going to spend the next two, 10 weeks together. I've I've exchanged voice notes with many of you. This is going to be such a great group. Very blessed to be working with these wonderful women. If you're in the audience, very blessed to be working with you. If you want to be part of this year's cohort, go check out the details at yaeltrush.com forward slash rich or send me a DM on Instagram and we will talk. Remember, the doors do close and they do open once a year. God Wants You to Be Rich opens once a year. So if you were thinking of joining us last January and you didn't, this is it. This is the moment. This is the 2023 cohort you'll want to get in now. Uh, and our guest this week actually will actually will be one of our guest experts this year inside God Wants You to Be Rich, as well as the fabulous Bobby Rebel. Emily Guy Birkin and Elizabeth Schwartz, all whom you may know from this podcast. But let's talk about Jeremy, Jeremy Schneider. You just heard him talk about receiving a couple million dollars, selling his company at age 34 for guess how much? Over $5 million. Yeah. Jeremy, while effectively haven't been able to retire then, is keeping quite 
busy educating people on personal finance. He founded Personal Finance Club, where he helps others learn solid principles in personal finance. Like Jeremy and I discussed today, there's nothing too exciting about the path of building wealth, unlike what you may hear at cocktail parties or in the news. We talk about Jeremy's entrepreneurial journey, how he literally bootstrapped building a company that was profitable and perfectly positioned for sale, how he built his net worth even while he was being the lowest paid employee at his company. What is Jeremy cautioning people against these days? Did the wealth building strategy change after he became a multimillionaire? His view of retirement, charitable giving, and more. Candid, practical, smart. Here's Jeremy Schneider. Jeremy Schneider, Personal Finance Club founder. So excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I am so excited. I mean, we, you, you do so much for the personal finance space. And today we'll, you know, you'll help us through this. You'll talk to us about all the fundamentals of personal finance and wealth building, since I know you really like stripping it down to its simplest core elements. But not before we dive into your journey as an entrepreneur, which in and of itself has a, so many lessons in personal finance. Let's start with that, Jeremy. Retiring at age 36, selling your company. Should I say the number? I'll, I'll let you say the number, okay? It's a lot of money. Secrets. Walk us through the journey, Jeremy, and maybe highlight some of the key numbers, I guess, associated with some of the stages of that journey towards retirement for people to kind of ambition the path? Sure. Um, so I was a normal college kid. I was studying computer programming. We're going way back, but it's kind of where the story starts. And I I decided to turn down a job offer from Microsoft, a full-time job offer. They offered me $74,000 a year plus $15,000 of bonus, which um, this okay. was back in 2002. And so- a fortune. You know, I know. I mean, there's way more money than I've ever even like heard of before. Right. Um, but I had interned there for two summers and it's a great company, but I didn't want to work there my whole life. And so I turned it down and instead decided to start my own company. I had no idea what I was doing. I literally just was like Googling how to start company. I was very concerned uh-huh. about like, am I breaking the law? Like, do I need to inform someone I've started a company? <laughs> like it's pretty, you know, it turns out you just like fill a, send a form to the government or something. Um, and then, yeah, for the first couple of years, it was terrible. It was a mess. I, I was living on credit cards. I think my first full year in business, my top line revenue was like $14,000. And that's before expenses. So, you know, maybe $5,000 of that was expenses to run the company. So I had like, you know, $8,000 to live on, which even back then wasn't enough, even at my, you know, pauper level of living. So I was just paying for groceries on credit cards. I, my rent was like 400 bucks a month. Um, and that went on for a couple of years. Then in the third year, it sounds fast when you tell the story at right. the speed, but at the time it was like two whole years. I'm like, Oh my God, I've been living on credit cards for years. Um, by the third year, I was able to basically make enough money to pay off my credit card debt and, and pay myself a salary. And then, yeah, that continued to, we continued to grow. I started hiring some employees. Um, we were up to seven people in, in the company. I actually brought my mom on as a, as a uh, co-owner. And then we had five employees. And then, yeah, in 2014, I sold the company for just over $5 million. <laughs> just? Yeah, I know. It was... <laughs> Wait, Jeremy, what, what kind of company was it? 
it's an internet company. Uh, it's called Rent Links. Basically, uh-huh. um, if you're a renter and you're looking for an apartment, you could go to Craigslist or Zillow or apartments.com or rentals.com. And there's like 50 of these apartment search websites out there in the internet ecosystem. Right. Um, but f- for landlords, it created this challenge, which is how do you post all these different sites? How do you keep your ad updated and accurate? Um, how do you track all the, you know, the renters calling and emailing you? And so we basically made this, you know, what we call a syndication platform where you can post once and automatically be on 50 different sites. Have all mm. the have all the renters and emails and phone calls come back to you directly, and so um, you know that little elevator pitch I just gave took me years to figure out. Um, it, you know, so I I, I say stuff like that because I, I I worry that there's like a young person listening who thinks that you know they hear a success story and they're like oh that guy he was always destined to, he always knew what he was doing I had no idea what I was doing you know I think and in fact I think like my naivety was was almost an advantage because I didn't really know what I was up against. And so, um, you know, if you're in that situation, uh, I encourage you to, you know, try, right. Um, the people who mm-hmm. grow and sell companies are the ones who, who try, you know, mm-hmm. like without, without a doubt, without a fail. So, so, so wait, going back to the beginning of the story. So you're putting everything on credit cards, not something that we would probably advise people to do <laughs> right now. Right. <laughs> No, I mean, obviously, from a personal finance perspective, it's a horrific decision. You know, that's like very dangerous. Um, you know, also, I, you know, there's this kind of myth going around that like um, entrepreneurs are super risk, like high risk takers. And I don't think that's really true. I think one, we're in a, a position to be able to take a risk. And so I wasn't like a single mother of several kids who needed to make money right. every single month. Um, I also had like a support network. My parents never gave me money, but you know, they were divorced, but both were self-sufficient. I think that if I like showed up on their doorstep and was like, I need to live here, like they wouldn't, wouldn't like, it would take you me, in. Yeah. They wouldn't let me starve on the street. Um, and you know, and I had a good college degree. And so my real backup plan wasn't mm. like begging my parents for money. My real backup plan was like begging Microsoft for that job back. You know, I was like, all right, if I can't, you know, if I, if I'm going to starve here, you know, I'm going to go try to get a job. And, and even I think my, my credit card debt got to about $12,000 after two years. You know, if you're making seventy four thousand bucks a year, the way I was living, I could pay that off in like four months. And so yeah. I was never at that in that risky of a situation. So again, if you're listening to this and you're like, that guy was just like buying jet skis on credit cards like crazy, I was like being very calculated to you know, it was a very calculated risk with a very, you know, solid backup plan. Good point. Yes. A very very solid backup plan indeed. And sounds like your network, like you said, you have a support network. Uh, I guess those around you weren't telling you, Jeremy, you were crazy. Or maybe if they did, they were not, you know, they still didn't uh, deter you from what you were doing. Talk to us about the salary, though. When you start employing, um, you said you got to seven employees. Were you, how were you paying yourself? Were you paying yourself or were you still living very frugal? Like, talk to us about that piece. So I was very not connected in the, business world. And I didn't really, you know, I think now if you talk about starting a technology company, I think people's playbook is like, make a PowerPoint deck and take it to Silicon Valley and get someone to give you a million dollars and pay yourself a six figure salary. Um, Like none of that was all so foreign to me and still somewhat is. Mm. And so I was just trying to make money by selling a product and then spend less than we made. And um, it turns out programmers are very expensive to even back then, and especially now are very expensive to hire. And that's what I did. And so I 
I paid myself the lowest salary at the company. And then I did the most expensive work, which was the programming. And wow. so everyone who worked for me made more money than I did. Um, and that was basically how I funded the company instead of asking rich people for a million dollars. So I could just like pay these artificial salaries. I just basically put in, you know, the, the elbow grease, you know, mm. style of funding where I was doing the hard work and we eventually made enough money where we could start hiring other developers. And so we had, you know, three or four programmers at the end. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I funded the company. I was living extremely frugally. My max salary was $36,000 a year and my no engineers, way. yeah, my engineers were making six figures. Wow. Jeremy, what a crazy story. And where were you living? Were you in the West Coast then living on a $36,000 salary? Yeah, about half. The first half was in Michigan. And then in 2010, I moved to San Diego. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had roommates. People ask how I did it. And, you know, at the time, I think everything is just a matter of perspective, right? right. You know, if you're, if you're making 200,000, you can imagine living on 120 or something. But if you're making, you know, 40 living on 50 sounds like, you know, living like royalty. Um, but you know, I had roommates, I was driving a 99 Ford Explorer. I paid $3,000 cash for it. I had no car payment. I just went to the grocery store. Uh, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't buy much and I wasn't even really into budgeting back then. I was just, the, the budget was you have no money. So I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I was all informed by those first couple of years where, you know, I was living on credit cards. I was like, you have, you have zero. So whatever the minimum <laughs> is that will like keep enough calories in your body to sustain, that's what you pay for and nothing else. Um, I mean, it's not, it sounds like it wasn't terrible. I mean, I feel like some people are like, Oh, that was a terrible life. I was like, no, I was like playing beach volleyball and hang out with friends and, um, <laughs> you know, you just do, you just do free stuff. Volleyball is free. The beach is free. And like I was living a mile from the beach in San Diego with a roommate. Um, yeah. And did you, did, did you have an exit plan? Did you think one day I'm going to sell this company? Yeah. You know, I, I was in college from 98 to 03, right during the dot com boom and subsequent yeah. bust. And so I, I was kind of like my, you know, my upbringing was seeing these, these big exits, um, during the late nineties. And I was like, yeah, I should do that. And I, there's even an article about me like that. It was written about me in college. I was like, it was written about me because I ran track. So it wasn't even a business article. It was a track article, but, um, it said that I was planning to retire at 25. And, um, like, I want to like punch that little punk kid that <laughs> I was like, what a jerk 25, like get out of there. But, um, so, you know, obviously I like had dreams of that. But still, plan A was always just to make money and spend less than we made. And um, I figured companies that buy other companies probably like ones that are doing well, you know. And so we were mm-hmm. just trying to like become a good company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I did read somewhere um, that even though you were making all of $36,000 a year, you still were growing your net worth. In fact, I think you grew it to about 100K. Could it be something like that? Yeah, that's almost exactly right. Um, so not counting the value of the business, which was unknown until the day I sold it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I was living on, or even, even though my, I was paying myself $36,000 a year, I was living on about 30 to 32,000. And then okay. I was putting 5,000 bucks a, a year or so away into a Roth IRA. And I was just buying mutual funds. I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, my dad had kind of showed me how to do it as a child, as like a teenager. Uh And I knew that there's this concept of compound growth where if you just keep putting money away consistently over time, it starts to snowball. And, um, you know, I was good at math. I was probably better at math as a kid than I am now because I'm getting old, but I had a very (laughs) sharp brain at least. And so I was like, all right, Jeremy, don't, don't mess up this like opportunity of compound growth. And so I was trying very hard to make sure I was putting that money in the Roth IRA. You know, the first few years in credit cards, I obviously couldn't do that, but you know, around 
you know, 25 years old or so is when I started putting that away. And so, you know, from like 25 to 35, those 10 years, I put about 5,000 bucks a month or a year away, sorry, which is 50,000 bucks. And that about doubled from the growth of the market, which was about a hundred thousand bucks. And so, you know, that, and, you know, just some cash and all that's about was my net worth when I, when I sold the company. Wow. So, so wait, so just for people who are sitting here and wondering, cause we've talked about the power of a Roth IRA before on the show, but sometimes people kind of miss this and they're probably thinking, okay, wait, wait, wait. So how did he do that? Did he just go online and do it? I'm guessing that's your answer. Tell us how you did that. I love that question because like when you hear some, you know, rich guy like me just spouting off confusing terms like Roth IRA, it can be so intimidating and right? and, and inaccessible to someone who's like, what are those words? How and do so, I do it? Right. And how do you do it? And so here's what, so a Roth IRA is just a type of bank account, like mm-hmm. checking account, savings account. Most of us are familiar with those. There's another type of account called a Roth IRA. It's got this fancy name. IRA stands for individual retirement account. And it's just like a savings account. And then the Roth is actually the name of a senator back in the 90s who helped like write the law to to create this thing. And basically, you put money into it just like you put into a savings account. But inside of that account, you can buy investments that grow and grow and grow. And then Mm -hmm. the reason you put it inside of a Roth IRA instead of just a regular investment account is that any anything inside of that account is forever protected from future taxes. And so if you, you know, for example, if you put 500 bucks a month away for 40 years, you're going to have three or $4 million in there. And you can take every penny of that out 100% cash or 100% tax-free and spend it however you want. And so that's why, you know, it's a great opportunity to build wealth by putting money into a Roth IRA, buying investments and then having it grow. And so specifically, like you said, yeah, you do it online. So for example, you could go to vanguard.com, which is an investment brokerage and you click, you know, you go to their homepage, vanguard.com, you click open account. It'll ask what type of account. So you click Roth IRA. It'll say, what's your name and, and your social security because it does, they do report to the government that you're using this tax break. Um, and then, and then eventually, you know, the, the heart, you know, that's kind of the easy part. Once you get to the website, the hard part is once you, once you put your money in, then you do have to pick an investment. And my favorite type of investment is an index fund, which is basically yes. buying the entire stock market. And, and this is an important part because so many people, I remember being young and being guilty of this, leave the money sitting there and don't realize there's a next step. You can't just transfer the money there and not invest it. Vanguard's yeah. not going to do it for you. I feel like every day of my life, I am, you know, shouting this from the top of my right. lungs. And every day of my life, I am still encountering young people who have cash sitting there. And so, yeah, the putting money into a Roth IRA by itself does nothing. It's just like putting into a savings account. It's just cash sitting there. Investing it is the second step. So step one is transfer money in by clicking the transfer button. And then step two is invest that money, like buy an investment by clicking like the invest or trade button on the website. And you know, mm-hmm. there, like on my website, I have like got some intro videos. There's tons of videos that like if you go to YouTube or whatever, um, that will walk you through these steps with screenshots or, you know, live videos or whatever. But yeah, not taking that second step is catastrophic because, you know, that 500 bucks a month I mentioned earlier, which could grow to millions would only be a couple hundred thousand if you don't invest it. And right. that's, that's all the that entire difference, you know, right. um, especially with inflation doing what it's doing now, if it's just sitting there in cash, it's actually losing purchasing power. It's losing value. So you m- need to make sure it's invested. 
And then when you pick those um, index funds, did you, did you just like very simple, you were young, did you just do like an S&P 500? Did you just choose a couple? What, what did you do back then? When I was young, I did what my dad showed me. And he he showed me that there are there's this thing called a mutual fund, which is another confusing sounding term. But right. basically, it just means a bunch of people like you, me, and a thousand other people mutually, like all of us, put our money into a fund, into a bank account. And that, and that fund is inside of your IRA. And, and a lot of people get confused with these layers of investing. Um, but you have an account like an IRA and then inside of that account, you hold a fund like a mutual mm-hmm. fund. And so he told me how to like go and, you know, you can look up the different funds that exist. So one might specialize in technology companies. One might specialize in, you know, international companies. One might specialize in real estate or healthcare or whatever. Um, and you can look at the, past performance and see how they did. And so that's what I did. I looked at the past performance and tried to pick good ones. I didn't really know what I was doing, but even picking randomly isn't that bad because at least it's right. going to work for you. Now upon you know a little bit of experience and reflection and understanding of the stock market, I think that type of picking a mutual fund is not optimal. It's not terrible. You know, people still invest that way. Better than nothing. <laughs> yeah. Way better than nothing. You know, we're kind of getting into, you know, cash, leaving it cash is like catastrophic. Mutual funds is pretty good, but slightly more optimal, in my opinion, is what's called an index fund, which is a type of mutual fund, but it basically takes away the whole guessing game surrounding which fund do you pick, which industry you pick, which sector do you pick. And an index fund simply buys every single stock in the entire stock market in proportion to the size of the company. And so right now, Apple is the biggest company in the world. And so if you bought an index fund, you'd have the most Apple, the second most Amazon, the third most Mm -hmm. Google down the list. And what that does is it basically guarantees you your fair share of growth of every single one of the companies in the market. And so as they profit and innovate and grow and pay dividends, you get all, you get all that directly in your account, diversifying away all risk of individual stock picking or individual sector picking and guaranteeing yourself all that future growth. Mm-hmm. And again, to simple, to clarify for those listening, when you're in a website like Vanguard and you're picking, they have a list of those index funds. It's, it's, it's actually quite simple. You don't have to do much thinking. Yeah. You know, for sure. The first time you like look at this list, it's going to, there's going to be a bunch of crazy symbols. Like there's Right. You know, between two and five letter symbols that are called ticker symbols. And so, for example, there's one that's VTSAX, which is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. Um, you know, how would you know to buy that one if you were looking at it for the first time? You wouldn't, you know, there's just point. There's, there's a bunch of them. Um, and, and so, you know, you do have to do a few hours of kind of learning about this stuff, you know, reading yeah, good point. trusted books, professionals, YouTube. Um, and, you know, it's it's tough. Like when when I listen to my voice saying this, I hear someone else and some other podcasts giving like day trading stock picking tips. And it's like, you know, how do you why trust me and not them? And right. and it's hard, you know, like they're gonna say trust them, I'm gonna say trust me, and it's kind of a tie. And so, you know, you do I do kind of encourage you to, you know, read some books and, and or or go to trusted sources, ask successful friends of yours, um, yes. you know, try to triangulate what the the consistent messages are, you know, when I, when I kind of moved from the mutual fund picking to the index fund strategy, it was after I sold my company and I didn't want to lose all this money I just made. Mm. And I started reading every book I could get my hands on around personal finance and investing. And after reading about two or three of them, you're like, Oh, wait a minute. These all say the exact same thing. Right. 
there's tons of noise out there in the world, you know, stock picking, day trading and options and futures and Bitcoin and, you know, all this <laughs> stuff that's grabbing your attention, but it's all nonsense. The truth right. is just like buy the index, buy the entire market, leave it alone. Don't touch it. Don't time the market. Don't guess. Just keep acquiring more over time, letting it grow. And that's actually the most optimal path to wealth. Be boring. Right. <laughs> totally. You know, I, you know, I, my day job now kind of is like posting to Instagram, making, you know, a little infographic about this. And it's, you know, we have lots of graphics, which is like, you know, boring is rich and rich is boring and all the exciting stuff, the guessing that the, the GameStop and the Dogecoin and Tesla and all this, you know, all this stuff that's like the, the hot topic of the moment grabs headlines because you hear, hear about someone who got rich overnight. And you think, oh, I should be doing that. But you shouldn't, you know, in the same way you hear about someone who won the lottery, but you shouldn't be playing the lottery. You know, the lottery is for people who are bad at math to steal money from them, you know, <laughs> and and the real way to wealth isn't making a lot of noise because it's not exciting and it's not changing. It's consistent. And so, yeah, you just got to be boring and buy and hold. I admire something you just said about the fact that when you sold the company, you were actually quite intentional about making sure that you're not going to lose this money. You're not going like you're not going to make silly decisions as we see so many, you know, end up doing. Um, wh where where did that come from? I mean, you were quite young. You could have just like gone off and bought yourself a few fancy cars. I don't know what you could have done a lot with that money. But you were like, no, I'm going to read a few books before I make anything, <laughs> any moves. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. I think it's a few things. One, you hear stories, right? There's like the story of the garbage right. man who won the lotto. And then two years later, he was a garbage man again, or, you know, 70%, whatever of NFL players who declare bankruptcy and, right. um, you know, credit to 34 year old Jeremy who has had, had at least enough world experience to know that he wasn't immune, immune from that. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to look dumb either and lose all my money. I had a weird period of time where we basically shook hands on the sale price of the company in December of 2014. And then in April of 2015 is when the deal closed and they like sent a bank wire and I clicked to refresh my bank account and all the money appeared. And, and so there was, you know, three and a half months or so where I was like living on $36,000 a year, driving a 99 Ford Explorer. And I knew there was like a pretty good chance that millions of dollars were going to be wired to my bank account in a few months. Um, I, I literally had trouble sleeping though that whole three months because I'm like, what if the deal falls through? It was a very an anxious time. Um, but it, it, it also gave me time to reflect on all those, you know, thought experiments about like, what will I do this, with this money? And you're right. Like, I'm like, I could go buy a Lamborghini. <laughs> you know, right. like, I remember being a kid and like having a Lamborghini on the a poster on the wall of my bedroom <laughs> or whatever. I'm like, what does that cost? Like 300 grand or something? You know, you know, after taxes, I expected to clear, you know, my share after tax was about 2 million bucks. I didn't get all 5 million for, you know, cause my employees had some and my mom had some in taxes, of course. Um, but still, two million bucks. You can you can buy a three hundred thousand dollar car, and you still have one point seven million left. That's still it. Almost doesn't seem like that big of a, a dent in the in right. the cash. But then I'm like, where would I park it? Um, <laughs> what would I act like when I got to this thing? <laughs> you know, like like why people would like be looking at me? I'd be like, yeah, I'm a douchebag. I don't know. Like, um, and and so it kind of gave me time to be like, yeah, I don't think I'm a, a Lamborghini kind of guy. I don't, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want that. It's not my style. It's I'm not really into cars. It feels like kind of like fraudulent for me to, you know, if I'm like super, super into cars, maybe, but I'm not. And so, you know, 
I think all those thought experiments basically gave me time to realize that, you know, money maybe won't buy the kind of happiness that a lot of people think that it does. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that. Um, and the things that I thought then and still think now that money can buy is basically, you know, freedom with your time and yeah. you know options in your life. And, and that doesn't come in the form of physical goods, you know, that buying physical stuff robs you of freedom with your time and options in your life. And so if I want to, you know, I was, after I sold the company, I suddenly had a job. And if I didn't want that job one day, I wanted to have enough money to sustain myself. And if I wanted to travel or whatever. Um, so that's what I focus my money on. Now, it sounds like other than switching from mutual funds to index funds, a more efficient way to invest, I guess, cost efficient. Um, uh, it sounds like the strategy didn't change much, Jeremy. Was there any, were there any changes in the strategy now that you had $2 million in the bank? You know, what is the strategy now? It's the same. You know, I think a lot of people think that when you're rich, this whole new world of, you know, money or investing opportunities opens up. And that's kind of true, except they're just worse opportunities. You know, ah. like you, can, you can invest in hedge funds, or you can invest in oil uh, exploratory deals and, you know, and all these things that you need to be in an accredited investor for accredited basically means you have at least, I think you need at least a million dollars in a net worth or at least half a million dollars in income, something like that. And basically there's laws in the U S that say, Hey, we don't want kind of sleazy investing people going to trailer parks and, and selling sketchy deals to poor people. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, so basically, and it's kind of messed up, but basically the rule is like, if you're a poor person, you can only invest in like publicly traded, you know, very well regulated investments like the stock market. You can't just give money to some dude that you don't know who's going to like disappear with it. Like, uh, pyramid scheme or something or a Ponzi scheme. Um, but you know, since, since I am now an accredited investor, like I see these opportunities and generally they're just worse, you know, Mm. um, you know, then I'm painting with a broad brush, but I think that, um, still for me, like 90% of my portfolio is just an index funds, the exact same thing that I could have invested with if I had $10. Um, and then with the other 10%, I, you know, I do afford myself a little bit of play money to, either pick an individual stock or put money into a, a real estate deal or, or something just to, you know, uh, allow me not to feel like I'm missing out on anything, but they're generally not better investments. Interesting. And just in, in terms of real estate, what does that look like? Like limited partnerships are just investing in something or, you know, or are you actually investing now like in real estate and buying your own stuff and taking care of it yourself? For a couple of years, I, my buddy and I started a house flipping company where we would buy a house and remodel it. Very little of the work doing ourselves. We'd hire contractors and sell it. And um, we flipped four homes and it was just a ton of work. It made very little money. You know, it was ah. like, I think we made a little bit less than if I just got got a job at In-N-Out Burger or something. Um, <laughs> and, and But I had to put up like a million, because I was doing it in Southern California. So I had to put up like a million dollars of my own money to like be buying these homes. I'm like, eh, put up a million dollars to make In-N-Out Burger money probably isn't a super wise decision. Um you know, I, I do think that kind of, you know, flipping, I'm not the hugest fan. I think buy and hold real estate investing, whether you're buying it for like long-term renting or or Airbnb or something like that, as long as you're buying and holding and letting time do its work can be super successful. For me, that's not my favorite thing just because I think my time is better spent doing like digital stuff, whether it's yeah. like content creation or writing software or whatever. 
Um, but yeah, so when I do it now, yeah, it is kind of like a limited partnership where, for example, there's some apartment building in Austin, Texas that I've never laid right. eyes on that I own 0.1% of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have a friend who's like more deep in the real estate world and he basically helped set up this deal. And I put, I think like a hundred grand in, and then, you know, I get like monthly updates or something that says how the building's doing. Right. I trust it's not a pyramid scheme, you know, or a Ponzi scheme. But, you know, if, if you do, I, I'm like hyper vigilant about those types of scams, because if you're going to f- get tricked into a scam, like that's how it's going to happen. It's not going to be, it's not going to be going through Vanguard. It's going to be buying some, some dude that's running some deal yeah. and he just ends up sending you some fake reports and going <laughs> to the Bahamas or something. <laughs> What would be possible if you had a brand new paradigm when it comes to money, as well as the knowledge and confidence to approach money with maturity, partnership, and purpose? If you had a clear strategy, literacy, and a tremendous boost in confidence in a way that is aligned with your values and your faith, allowing you to live life outside the spreadsheet, what if you could learn to have a relationship with money where it flows to you, where you're investing towards your dreams and goals, where there's inner peace around money and where there's healthy communication and partnership around finance in your marriage. Well, guess what? That's all possible. And that's why I've opened the doors to God Wants You to Be Rich, the only live group program designed for ambitious, spiritual Jewish women who want to transform their finances by addressing the emotional, spiritual, and practical sides of money in a way that is aligned with eternal Jewish wisdom. And you can join us right now for the 2023 cohort of God Wants You to Be Rich at yaeltrush.com forward slash rich. Enrollment closes December 22nd at midnight. That's yaeltrush.com forward slash rich. Speaking of which, I know one of your pet peeves as well as mine is how complex the world of personal finance, how it's made up to be, right? It seems like it's so complex. And there are people out there who play on people's beliefs that, you know, that it is complex and trick them, trick people into making poor financial decisions. Some of what you've just described, right? What is one of those things that you see people get tricked into all the time that's that you want to make sure people are just aware of what's something to caution them against I don't, I don't know if you know what i'm going to say but i feel like it's a leading question because there's one specific type of product that I, like just drives me nuts but before it might I, be the same one that i'm crazy okay, we'll see we'll see but yeah but but just in general there is you know i think the financial services industry is like a four trillion dollar industry and very little of it is really designed to serve the best interest of the individual investor right. most of it is designed to charge fees and and take money from investors and so as as an individual who's like stepping foot in this confusing world of investing it is daunting because all of these like rich companies are out there like making moves making fine financial crazy products that you think maybe you should be taking part in but most of it is really just for their benefit not for yours or at mm. least for their maximizing their benefit not yours um one such product that just seems to be running rampant on the internet right now is the specific types of permanent life insurance. Is that what you're thinking? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. I mean, on TikTok and Instagram, it's like they're just in, I don't know, it's everywhere. And like every day I get someone, you know, some young person who doesn't have a lot of money, who is like very innocently asking, should I be buying life insurance as an investment? And the answer is my God, no. Um, you know, and, and the preface to that is lots of insurance is fine. You know, insurance is a tool to mitigate your risk. So I have car insurance. If I get in an accident and, and there's an injury that helps cover, I have homeowner's insurance. If someone slips on my front yard, I, um, if I, I don't have children, but if I did, I would have life insurance, but I would have term life insurance just to cover me for the years where that child is a dependent and right. I'm not wealthy enough to like cover them if I were to die. Um, but there's this, Frankenstein product that has combined what is a relatively simple product of term life insurance with this investing component. Right. And it, and it creates these huge commissions for the salespeople. And so there's this group and not most, most insurance agents are good, honest people doing, you know, doing a professional work, but there's this group of predatory insurance salesmen who basically have this whole hard sales pitch Mm-hmm. implying that buying this life insurance product is the path to great wealth. Yes. And, and they show you the charts and the whole deal. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's the best for taxes. And it's, you can be your own yeah. bank and you, you, and uh, you can never lose because yeah. it's always capped right yeah. here. Can't lose money. And, and basically every single talking point that they have, the truth is the opposite of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And as a group, I don't know, I, I've just never met a group of people so dishonest as this group of people. And, and you know how, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I've been, I was watching these like lies for years. And I was like, that's not true. It can't be true. Cause I understand investing and that can't be true. But then when you push them, it's like, they're so squishy. They never, you can't nail them down. And so I went on TikTok and was like watching one of these videos about these, like these lies. And I clicked on the link in bio and I, I signed up for the sales pitch. I was like, all right, sell me if it's so good, let's do it. And I sat through 90 minutes of two, uh, across two sales pitches with the agent's permission. I recorded the entire thing. Um, I, I bought the product whatever. I was just basically smiling, nodding the whole time. I was biting my tongue because I knew what he was saying was like total bullshit. And if you think it's bad what they're publicly advertising, imagine what they're saying behind closed doors. Oh it's my crazy, gosh. right? Um, and so I bought it and then I got the policy. It was 91 pages long. It was about a half inch thick. Mm-hmm. I read I read this 91 page insurance policy and I did the math on what actually is happening and it's horrific. And so they said, you can't lose money, but you know, my policy was $200. The, you know, for a $200 premium payment, I think it was like $92 of that was immediately eroded to fees. And yeah. so you're losing, you're losing like 45% of your money instantly. Like mm-hmm. to lose half of your money instantly. And then for them to say you can't lose money is it is such, you know, any sort of like, if you went to Vegas and the odds were like, you're going to lose right. half your money per payment, like that would be the worst game in all of Vegas by a, like, a, like a landslide. And yet they're selling this and saying, you can't lose money. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, like the fees rack up, like the, the parlor games that they were saying like, Oh, there's a 0% floor and a 9% cap. Like that's just a parlor trick, which makes you lose money over time relative to the market. Um, they don't mention like the cost of insurance, like the longer you hold this policy, the more exp- the more you have to pay in fees because right. the older you get, the more likely you are to die. And and the reality is, is a lot of these insurance policies just end up being worth nothing. You pay mm-hmm. into it for years and years and years, and then the cost of insurance erodes any value that was created. And then you you know, and I was talking earlier about putting five hundred bucks a month and having 
millions of dollars with one of these, you can, you can put 500 bucks a month into it for 30 years and end up with nothing. Nothing. Um, So yeah, I, those, I mean, I do not bite my tongue when I talk about how much I dislike these permanent insurance policies as an investment. I agree. And actually something I did not know, Jeremy, maybe these people are not on my feed, but I did not know that people were actually on TikTok and on Instagram selling this stuff. I just know from experience, from students, from friends. Um, I have, I've myself sat through some of these meetings and like with my husband, I'm like, something is not right. Like this should not like insurance and investing. They're two separate things. Yeah. Somebody wants to combine them that something is off here. Yeah. <laughs> go to, buy insurance with the insurance company and just go invest at an investment company. Done. But, you know? yeah. but their hard sales pitch is so smooth. Yes. It's, it's hard in the moment to be like, you know, yeah. And a distinguishing eye like yours, you're like, you're like this, you're like squinting at you like, this can't be right. But I'm not sure exactly how, because they're lying. You know, they're saying they're leaving out huge, you know, they never mentioned the fees and the fees are the you know biggest part of the problem. Right. And, you know, there's a simple underlying truth, which is if you buy an index fund, you're basically investing in the entire stock market and it's a direct path, a direct line from the growth of the market directly to your bank account. If you buy an insurance product, the insurance company isn't magically creating new money. They're not some like super business that just is super profitable. They're just taking your money, investing in the stock market the same way, but then they siphon off commissions and fees and cost of insurance and all their expenses. And what is left is some smaller amount of growth. And mm-hmm. this 91 page policy of my pol- uh, of my insurance policy all these rules are not there to benefit you. You know, as they say, complexity doesn't benefit the investor. It benefits the company. And so they've set up all these rules to make it look like some parlor trick where they're creating value. But the simple truth is they can't, they can't produce more value than the market after their fees. Right. They're covering their bases. And by the way, getting out of these contracts is super complicated. It's not so easy. Yeah. There's usually like a 15 year surrender policy per period. So it's like, if you want your money back in under 15 years, then you, you're going to lose it. You know, Actually, I, I, I don't know. I've maybe seen a hundred people buy one of these and have had every person hate it, and then, or at least hate it when they like understood it. And then right. I actually put a call. I've I have four hundred thousand Instagram followers now, and I put a call out and said, "Does anyone have a policy that they like? Just like, hey, like I want to hear your story." And w- one guy wrote back. He's like, he's like, yeah, I started investing these when I was a kid. My parents set up for me, and they're worth like two or three hundred thousand dollars. He's like, this has been great for me. And I looked at his policy and how much money they're putting in. I was like, dude, if you were investing in just an average mediocre mutual fund, you'd have about $2 million. You know, you've lost about 90% of your value because you've routed that, those investing dollars through this insurance company. And, you know, I don't think he wanted to hear that because, you know, people don't like being told they're wrong or whatever. Um, but it, it definitely like solidified my belief that like even in the case where the consumer is happy, it's just because they didn't know what they, you know, what they should have been doing. Right, 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 right. And it boils down to so much of what you do and I do. It's just really education, right? Like, because a lot of it is people are full prey to, they they trap you because you're scared that the market is risky, right? So they're, they're playing on that, right? But once you learn that you're, when you're, when you're investing in the market, you're there for the long term, and it's, overall it's always going to grow <laughs> the market is always going to grow then then you don't then you don't have this 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 fear or this constant dread yeah absolutely and and yet good stock market investing is not 
speculating. It's not guessing. It's not jumping in and out. It's just simply owning and acquiring more shares over time. And I think right. people like, you know, pop culture kind of lives in these two worlds where in one world, the stock market is this risky gambling device, but the other world, corporations are always going to find a way to profit. And like those two things can't both be true because corporate, and, I, and frankly, I think the one where the corporation is always going to profit is the one that's true. And so if you are an owner of those corporations over a short period of time, who knows, because there is some speculation. That's what you hear on the For news sure. when the Dow Jones dropped 200 points today and fears of, uh, you know, Turmoil Lay in the off. Mideast. Right. I know. Like <laughs> there's always turmoil in the Mideast. You know, we can <laughs> we can count on that. That's gonna be forever. Um, but when you yeah, but when you buy for decades, then what happens is is all that speculation kind of just becomes, you know, background noise. And then there's this underlying growth and profits of the company that keeps returning to right. you to the investor. Right, right, right. Jeremy, let's talk about retirement because, you know, you effectively retired at 36. I'm going to tell you something. Maybe you weren't aware of this, but um, <clears throat> from a Jewish perspective, actually, retirement is not a thing. Would you believe that? Like, really? I mean, if you think about it, like this whole idea of like, you know, one day getting this big payout and just going and playing golf or sitting by the beach, we're really meant here to be productive, creative beings. Obviously that can change, you know, with age, with time, what that, how, what that looks like. But this idea of just like sitting back and relaxing and doing nothing creatively impactful for the world is not a very Jewish idea. So with that, tell me, tell us what is, what does retirement mean to you? And what, what did that look like? Cause you don't look very much to me like you really retired. <laughs> Well, I actually love that perspective and, and to be totally transparent, the only reason I would use the word retire is just because it, it's like attention grabbing. Yeah. Um, you know, if you say like, I slowly built wealth over decades, I don't know. I mean, maybe that'd be, but you know, when you say retired at 36 in, in three words, it's just like this curiosity. And, um, but I don't really like the word retirement at all. Like I prefer the term financially independent. Mm -hmm. Um, and because I'm at a point where I don't need to answer to a boss if I don't want to. Um, I have enough money where that can sustain me. But, you know, I, I think that my view on it kind of did shift maybe in like the, the Jewish perspective like kind of came around to me because when I was in my twenties, I did picture selling my company and having a finish line and being like, I did it. And like, I'm going to the beach. I'm like, I'll be in Fiji or whatever. Um, and I even like, I, I had a conversation with the CEO who bought my company and I told him, I was like, all right, dude, I'm millions of bucks. Like I'll be in Fiji. And he said, what are you going to do when you get back? And, you know, it was a very friendly conversation. He wasn't mad or anything, but he's like, you know, you can't live your life on a beach. Like that's not, that's a, pretty terrible life you know for a week or two it's probably pretty great but then six months six months in fiji like wow yeah like my mind is turning to mush i'm not being productive i don't (laughs) feel like i'm producing value or giving anything or getting anything and so for the first year of my you know early retirement i kind of did do nothing i I, I went to italy for two months and coached beach volleyball and i traveled and i played video games i kind of did what people think they're supposed to do when they're like they make it or whatever but over that course that year I realized I like, I wasn't enjoying it. I, I, there was no tension in my life. I wasn't like working towards anything. I wasn't building anything. Mm. I I felt like I lacked purpose. Like what I, you know, I I didn't really want to be, you know, my life story. Like I can imagine being like 70 and someone saying, tell me your story. And I was like, well, I sold a company when I was 34 and I've been a piece of (laughs) since then. It's not really like a great, and that's basically why I started personal finance club. Cause I wanted to like find my passion, my purpose and, and helping people with money is just something that I really 
truthfully internally enjoy and you know making it kind of into a little business now is is really fun good for you good for you one of the things that impressed me as i was you know kind of doing my research on your as a business owner now that you have personal finance club and again you'll tell us soon but you have all these online courses you're really educating people charity jeremy you are giving 20% of revenue that's sales, not profit to charity. Where where did this come from? This desire to contribute was was charity always important to you? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I feel like I give away all this money and no one ever cares, and it's like, man, I, I missed a marketing opportunity or something. Uh, no, I mean, that's obviously not why I do it, but um, I still enjoy talking about. It. Yeah, you know, I think there was a time in my twenties where I went on a trip to South America somewhere, and I saw. Look, even when I was broke, I was traveling somehow. Um, and I saw this, like these children, like begging on a bus. And, and I was like, holy shit, that's like, that's heavy, man. Like these kids, you know, who knows what political spin someone might put on that, but whether they should be begging, whether they shouldn't giving them money is good or bad. Like that's not a great place for kids to be. And, and, and it suddenly like put into perspective, like how like vapid my, you know, my challenge was like, Oh, I'm trying to build a tech company. Like, it's just like, who cares, you know? And so, you know, obviously I still have to live my life and and do what I know how to do, but I wanted to like be a little bit more, I don't know, thoughtful about the world than just yeah. trying to like maximize my own bank account. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I found this online movement. I think it's called 1% for the world, which basically is, I think the general concept is if every company took 1% of their revenue and donated it to charity or to, to better causes, you know, we could essentially solve the world's problems. And I was amazing. Like, I was like, I like that. And I was like, but I'm going to do 2%, you know, 1%. That's, that's pretty small. And so like my little tech company, when I was on living on $36,000 a year, we do 2% of revenue. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, then, uh, you know, it was great. Like all my employees, we, we kind of just like split the money equally among all the employees. Everyone picked their own charities. We like donated at the end of the year. That's um, amazing, Jeremy. It was nice. There's, you know, Still to this day, when I buy something for myself, I'm like so frugal. I'm like, oh, is this a waste of money? Can't mm. afford this. I don't say I can't. Like, these days, I don't really say I can't afford it, but it, it definitely like it pains me to spend money myself. But to to like give money for whatever reason, like I can write you know many digit long checks, and it's very easy for me. I don't know why. Um, yeah, so that's what we did. And then when I started Personal Finance Club. I was like, okay, well, now I really don't need the money. Um, 2% seems too small. Let's just go nuts and make it 20%. Because, um, you know, I, I do think that I'm in this world of financial literacy, there are a lot of sharks swimming around and a lot of people like selling crappy insurance products or, um, <laughs> you know, day trading courses or, you know, I was like, I want to be a, a legitimate- Get rich with Bitcoin. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, Dogecoin or there, as like an influence, I literally have people DMing me trying to pay me to do pump and dump schemes for crypto. They're oh like, Hey, God. this crypto, no one's ever heard of before. Push it on your stories for three days and then sell it the day before you stop. Or I'm like, I'm like, how on earth? Like that is just felonous, fraudulent, but it's just the way of the world right now. Um, yeah. So I was like, I want to be an engine for good. And 20% seemed cool. Um, yeah. And so we've been donating 20% of revenue. And like, like I said, that's tough because they can make us unprofitable like it did the, the previous 12 months, but that's okay. We'll figure it out. 
That is awesome. Jeremy, you seem to have a everything you've said. I mean, it seems like you grew up with a pretty healthy mindset around money, actually. What, what, was, what was your upbringing like? What, was, what did you learn from your parents? Because a lot of what you said is like, whoa, like this kid grew up with something pretty, pretty unique. Thanks. Um, I grew up in Southeast Michigan to, uh, you know, middle class parents. They were frugal. My dad's side of the family is Jewish. My mom's side of the family is Christian. Um, you know, I don't know. I just think that they themselves, they, they kind of grew up pretty poor and, but they were, you know, both went to a good college and kind of were growing, you know, growing their careers when we were young children. And so I saw their struggle with money, you know, my dad, if we went to McDonald's or something, wouldn't let me supersize my meal due to mm. financial reasons. I was like this growing teenager, so hungry. I was like, I need more fries. <laughs> um, so part of that frugality is definitely like part of the fiber of my being. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just I'm learning along the way. I mean, I, I definitely credit my parents a lot for for setting a good example. Yeah, yeah, you know, it seems, but it it, it doesn't sound like I, I think there's like a sense of frugality, but it doesn't sound like you grew up with like a, a, at least it doesn't sound like now as an adult that you have like this scarcity or deprivation mindset. Um, you just seem to be really intentional. That's what it sounds like. Which brings me to maybe we'll wrap up with this. Um, you mentioned the word frugal just recently. Um, and now about your parents, but you did it about yourself. Is there a difference between being frugal and cheap, Jeremy? You know, I like to, I like to highlight the difference. You know, I mean, you can definitely use those words interchangeably, but in my opinion, frugal is basically being intentional about maximizing the value of your money, mm. and cheap is just like spending less no matter what. And so, yeah. cheap is like not tipping at restaurants and buying cheap clothes, and you know, just not you know not thinking about the value of money, just thinking about the you know minimizing the, the amount of money. Whereas frugal might be, hey, I would rather buy a $100 shirt because I know I'm going to wear it, you know, a mm-hmm. hundred times rather than a $20 shirt. I'm going to wear twice because right. your cost per wear on one is like a dollar. And the cost per wear on the other is, is $10 or frugals, you know, eating at home more often. And then when you go out to eat tipping generously, it's maybe spending less overall, but not being, you know, cheap to waiters or whatever. And so, um, I definitely consider myself frugal. I, I, I do think there's some internal fiber of my being that is pain to see money wasted. Right. Um, but you know, money well spent, which I consider charity doesn't yeah. hurt at all. A hundred percent. I'm with you. Jeremy, tell us where we can find you. Tell us about your online courses. Well, yeah, my, my new, my new thing is called personal finance club. I basically, the questions you asked were so great because I, there's so much shame around money and so much. It's like that meme that says, I don't know how money works. And at this point I'm too afraid to ask. Like <laughs> we all feel that way. Um, and yes. we, and we shouldn't, you know, like if you don't know what an IRA is or an index fund or a, the stock market or a bond, like that's okay. Like most people are in that boat, like the vast majority. And, and so I just try to make this stuff really, really simple. I use like colorful little emojis. I, I use like hand puppets if I could, you know, cause at its core, it's really not, if we learned this stuff in high school, it would have been easy. It's as easy as like, totally. you know, it's, yeah, it's like algebra or easier, you know, it's like multiplication or something, you know, but because we didn't and you see these like people on CNBC trying to make it seem very complex. Um, we're afraid of it. So yeah, that's what personal finance club is. It just, it, it's introduced, introduces money and investing simply. I have two courses. One is how to invest in index funds and, and the other one's called how to money like a millionaire. It basically goes through budgeting and debt and insurance and estate planning and all the stuff that you can do to set up your 
Sorry, I just tapped my microphone if it made noise. But all the stuff you can do to, I get, if, if you're listening to this and not watching it, I get very animated with my hands and sometimes <laughs> like smash my microphone and I can barely I hear it. But, right. But then when you hear, you're listening to it back, you're like, Oh, I'm hitting my microphone the whole, the whole podcast. Yeah. So those two courses, they're $79 each. So I think you can get them both for like somewhat less than the double price and you get unlimited lifetime access. I'm not, I don't really need to make a pitch. Like 99% of what I do is just creating free content and it's all the exact same content that's in the courses. But if you just want a place to go, that's like a nice organized walkthrough. That's what the course is for. And it also funds me and my two employees to keep creating the the content. Good. Oh yeah. So personalfinanceclub.com. Most of the magic happens on Instagram at personalfinanceclub. Thanks for letting me give a shout out. Yes. And we'll go follow you there. Absolutely. Jeremy Schneider, thank you so much. This was so great. I so appreciate everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Yeah. Super fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Jeremy Schneider for stopping by. You can find him at personalfinanceclub.com and on Instagram at personalfinanceclub. Thanks again for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the wealth by hitting that review and rate button on Apple Podcasts. You know where that is. It is the best way that you can help the show. And remember, the doors to God wants you to be rich close this Thursday at midnight and won't open again for another year. To check out the details and enroll, head over to yeltrush.com forward slash rich. I hope you have a wonderful Hanukkah and I'll see you here next week. 